When it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, the New Testament provides us with both facts and consequences. Uh, The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, set out the facts of the resurrection and make historic claims regarding Jesus, that he was executed, entombed, and later enlivened. The epistles, that is, letters sent to disparate house churches throughout the empire, offer us the consequences of Jesus' resurrection. What does it mean that this body, which once was lifeless, now has life again and will forevermore? And most of the epistles that deal with the resurrection, the emphasis is on the future consequence of the resurrection. That is, that just as Christ rose from the dead, we too will share in his never-ending life. But it does beg the question, well, what about right now? Because we're not there, and we don't live there. How does the resurrection speak to us right now? What kind of a word does it offer to us who live in the present? Colossians, particularly the third chapter, answers some of that question. I want to speak about a lofty Christ, a lofty mind, and a lofty station. This passage hinges upon the position, the exalted position of Jesus Christ. This is what St. Paul says in verse 1. I encourage you to follow along. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. From the earliest days of the Christian movement, believers had a brontosaurus-sized perspective of Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, Jesus is not like King Arthur. You know, King Arthur, if he existed at all, probably was a, a Saxon warlord of some sort. But then, uh, you know, there was a French monk who decided to tell his own tale about Arthur. And that's where we get Guinevere and Lancelot and Camelot and round tables and grandeur and gold and marble castles. That didn't happen, though, right? But with Jesus, we have something very different and far more fascinating. The, The perception of Jesus did not evolve into greatness over time. It was just great from the start. The letter to the Colossian Christians was written in the early 50s AD, arguably earlier than the Gospels themselves. And in this very early testimony about Jesus, Paul states what is by that time already settled Christology or doctrine about Jesus. He says in the first chapter, for in him, in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been, been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's just made three claims about Jesus. Number one, he's divine. Number two, he has authority over all things. And lastly, he's the creator of all things. 17 years after the resurrection. And then in chapter 3, what we had read tonight... Jesus breaks through the glass ceiling of all human achievement. He is risen, and he is at the right hand of God the Father, language that is mirrored in the gospel narratives themselves. In other words, Paul is relating to us already established teaching. So Jesus is pictured not only as raised from the dead, but seated at God's right hand. Now sometimes when that's preached, that he's seated at God's right hand, uh, the minister makes the comment that he noticed he's sitting and he's not standing, and that suggests that his work is done, he's tired, and he's done laboring. He's resting. Sabbath rest, he's finished. Kinda. Probably it means he's enthroned. 
The person who sits at the monarch's right hand is generally the vice-regent who holds the, the practical power of the empire. And here Jesus is, sitting in that royal position. He oversees all dominions, all principalities and powers. Everything is under his authority. St. Paul places Jesus at the highest place. Why that's so remarkable, of course, is that Jesus is an executed criminal. Destroyed by the state for sedition, killed uh, by the Jewish people for blasphemy. This, ho- this highest authority for Paul is greater than any creditor, any manager, any author, any guru, any speaker, any fortress, any bomb, any flag, any nation. He's not just inspired. He's not just memorable. He's not just intellectually satisfying. He is the God-man. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the one who sits in the place of vice-regent over the universe. So a lofty Christ, and from that position of loftiness, Paul is calling us upward. He says that we ought to have a lofty mind, a mental conversion, a lift. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Now notice the contrast between realms. Heaven, that which is above, is the, um, is the way that the Bible speaks about God's perfect realm in which there is no competition, no infighting, no moral infelicities. It's a place of of perfection. It's a place where we are healed, we're made well, we relate to each other well. Versus uh, things that are on earth, that's the place of moral ambiguity, complexity, darkness, hiddenness. And he says those of us who live here now ought to have brains that are in the clouds. Brains that are affected differently, informed by the very power of heaven itself. There is a a wonderful woodcut that was given to the um, SAE fraternity in the United States, and it's a woodcut of uh, the goddess Minerva, the Roman goddess Minerva, who's the goddess of wisdom and strategy, be good at board games, and Minerva has her hand resting on the head of a lion that is right next to her. And the idea is, of course, that by resting her hand on the head of the lion, she has influence over the natural instincts of a lion. And that is, in a way, what we need. We need heaven to somehow reach us here. And, uh, and the Bible considers the mind, that is the part of us which reasons, thinks, uh, discerns, our mental grid, is a veritable powerhouse. It's a total powerhouse. That, and this is why propaganda is so powerful. Because if you can control, via repetition and imagery, somebody's mind, you can get them to do things that they wouldn't normally do. The mind is a very powerful thing in the Bible. To be used for good or ill. But, but I want to consider the, the Bible's lofty perspective of the mind just for a moment. Because this is what Paul is concerned with, at least in this passage. Uh, the Bible says that you can't love God perfectly without it. Because the summary commandment is to love God with heart, mind, soul, and strength. The Bible also says that the mind, in large part, defines one's nature and behavior. The King James gets it right in Proverbs 23. As a man thinketh, so is he. The mind is also, according to the Bible, a sin-infected and needs to be renewed. Romans 12 says that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Even the word repentance itself shows us the importance of the mind. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia. Quite literally, it means a change of mind. 
And it follows that our spiritual battle involves not only the body and the affections, but the mind as well. This is 2 Corinthians 10. Take every thought captive to Christ. Notice the temptation, or remember the temptation narratives of Jesus. Whenever the devil comes to lure Christ into, a, into embracing a compromised position and path, he doesn't just ask Jesus to alter his behavior. He first assaults his mind. He says to Christ, if, if you are the Son of God. The idea in the Bible is that the mind, our perception, our attitude, our internal grid, that if, if it is set right, then much of life is set right. And if it's set wrong, much of life is set wrong. This is why St. Paul says to set your minds at a higher place. Uh, Christianity is more, after all, than just behavior, more than just externals or liturgical practices. I have a friend named Scott, who's studying to be a priest, and he was one of these guys who would be best def- defined as a spaz. You know the type. These uh, folks that seem to drink endless amounts of Red Bull or, or espresso or five-hour energy that are always on, shaking, kind of sweaty, and really intense. Uh, even about s- silly subjects, they get overly opinionated and they have a lot to say and they're, and they're shaking as they speak to you and they're almost out of breath as they express what they think. And he was one of those guys. Turns out that before he attended seminary, he fought with a revolutionary group and uh, who was, they were involved in very kind of violent a- activity against the current government, which they regarded as illegitimate. So he left the militia and then became a Christian and then decided if you're a Christian and you want to get serious, you got to go to seminary and be a priest. So he went to seminary, got a new circle of friends. And, you know, all the externals changed. But he was still the most belligerent, difficult, petulant person. Now, why? He went through all the right motions. He made the right changes on the outside. But what he needed was a changed mind. Something about his grid needed to be re, uh, reestablished. And notice he uh, commands Christians to do this, to seek and to set That means that this behavior, to set and to seek our minds on things that are above, is not intuitive and it's not natural, even for converted Christians. It is natural to do the opposite. It is natural to adopt the mental impulses and values of our family, our culture, our age, and our biology. But Paul wants to put us on a separate quest, a quest to seek after the mental state of heaven and to develop... Uh, to quote Schleiermacher, the German theologian, a Christ consciousness. Now, of course, the question is how? How do you even start with that? Well, we need to be grounded in our station. That really is the great insight. There are, there are other things too, but we need to be grounded in our station or our new position that has been given to us, gifted to us in Christ. This is verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Notice the negative and the positive, the death and the life. It's a mystical thing that the scriptures describe, that when Jesus dies and rises again, he does not do so alone, but takes many, many companions with him, a multitude, millions of companions with him in that death and resurrection. The scripture says that we are united to him mystically in that act. So when he dies, there is something about our old selves that die, And when he rises to new life, there is something in us that is born that will never die. 
And, uh, and so consider the negative, that our idiosyncratic selves, which are full of uh, sin and are often distracted because we think life is all about getting the best deal from Verizon. By the way, it's not possible. There is no good deal from Verizon. Don't lie to yourself. It's church and it's not worth it. So um, uh, in that side of you that needs something good from Verizon has to die. It just has to die because it's never going to happen. In fact, this is what it says. You have died. It's already done. You just have to get used to that fact that you're already a dead man or a dead woman. Uh, you have died, and your life is hid with Christ and God. That is what is truest about you, best about you, what is redeemed in you is already seated. It's already enthroned. It's already in the place of finality. You've already arrived. That's the great mystery of the gospel, is that you are home before you've even begun the journey. And St. Paul is saying, now that we are hidden away with Christ in the safest possible place, because you are, you are in the arms of the unchallenged uh, vice-regent of the universe. That's where we are permanently. And since we are there, Paul wants our current earthly mindset to reflect our new station. This is the, the, the great challenge because our mind has to play a bit of catch-up. Uh, some of you have seen the uh, unsurpassable film, I'm being exceptionally sarcastic, King Ralph from 1991 with John Goodman. If you haven't seen it, you're missing nothing, and you probably shouldn't see it. Uh, but you can YouTube it for free. I'm just saying that's probably illegal, but you can do it. Now, in, in 1991, there was this comedy made about, um, about this American man who, unbeknownst to him, was a distant relative of the British monarchy. Now, the problem with the monarchy in the film is that in the first scene, they're all standing to take a family picture, and they're standing in uh, rain-sodden, wet grass. And there's an electrical cord that is running... <laughs> Uh, throughout the wet grass, and the photographer is ready to take a picture and does so, but doesn't realize there's an electrical malfunction of sorts, and the entire royal family, it's not funny, it's not funny, dies immediately. They're all dead, and now they think, well, now what? You know, who is the new king or queen of England? And so they discover that there's a long-lost relative of some, of some princeling who's living in uh, Michigan, and he works at a bowling alley, and he's drinking beer, and his name's Ralph Jones. And so the British consul comes to Ralph Jones and says, well, you, congratulations, you're the new king of England. The rest of the film is nothing but ridiculous and cliched hijinks about how this, this uh, rather earthy American uh, becomes and fits into the role of, as king of England. Now, that's the exact same thing that, that theology says to us tonight. Um, that was very funny. Now, uh, theology says to you, the Bible says to you, uh, uh, the gospel says to you, you have been uh, given a great placement, a great position. You didn't earn it. You didn't, this isn't the Navy. And the task now is to live into what has already been given to you and, and to have your mind adjust to your gifted station. And I want to talk for a moment about a few concrete mental adjustments from our fleshly brains to our Easter brains. And there needs to be a movement from one to the other for the good of ourselves and for the good of our families, for the good of our friends, for the good of those uh, who love us. I want to talk about three fleshly brain ruts that we often get into, and then I'll be done. And the first is coveting. Now, it could be a skill that somebody else has. It could be a gift or a natural disposition. Uh, it, could be, um, it could be somebody else's family because they're a lot nicer than your family. Uh, or somebody else's uh, parents because they're not divorced and your parents are divorced. And that makes Christmases dreadful, by the way. And so you wish you, hadn't have, you didn't have to choose. You didn't have to have that problem. And so you're, you're coveting somebody else's familial situation. 
or the fact that they go on better vacations than you because you could only afford to go to Lake Erie. And let's be honest, who wants to go to Lake Erie when you could go anywhere else? And so this coveting impulse is there. And the fleshly brain says something like this. The fleshly brain will always exaggerate our lack and the possessions of other people. Uh, And so the fleshly brain will say something like this. You know, things never really do work out for me. I mean, I went to the right schools and I made the right choices and I wrote the right essays and, uh, and I really tried and, uh, and life has let me down uh, time and time again and that has nothing to do with me, of course, but uh, I'm a victim of the cruelty of the universe and, uh, and I'm noticing that other people who um, they live all around me and they don't get up as early as I do and they don't set their alarms like I do and they don't listen to NPR and they're not informed and... Uh, and they're not, um, and they yell at their children too much, and I don't do that. And uh, and um, I've really worked hard, and they've had everything handed to them. Um, now that's the, the the fleshly brain. The Easter brain says something like this: The enthroned Christ of Heaven has been more generous to me than I could have ever imagined, and certainly more than I deserve. And so, when it comes to the things that I want, maybe I'll get them, maybe I won't. And when it comes to what other people have, isn't it great that God blesses people differently? And isn't it fantastic that he's given that person a break? Maybe they need a break. Maybe they need a break more than I need a break. And who's to say that if I had everything on my wish list, I'd actually be happy? Because what would happen then? I would just create another wish list that would be longer. What a wonderful thing that Jesus has decided this, and he never uh, informed me about the reason. And he never asked my opinion about why he gives certain people some things and other people other things. He never asked me to be on the committee. And that's good. I mean, it's one less committee. So that's coveting. Something about grumbling. Grumbling, uh, where we treat every conversation like an angry bingo game, where we have this spinner, and out of it falls a ball, and it's a conversation ball, and there's something on the ball, and we get to grouse about something, Uh, some slice of the universe that we deem to be relatively unjust or unfavorable. Uh, And and we we can always find something negative to say. You know, can you believe the community theater around here and what kind of awful plays that they put on and just represents the degradation of society? Can you believe the speed limits in this town, how terrible they are? And everything's a speed trap. They're just out to get you. The man is always looking over your shoulder and trying to do you in. And then there's the cell phone reception in my house. I mean, I have two bars all the time, two bars. That's all. I, I just I just see, get this phone. I say, hello, hello, and they can't ever hear me. And what's, what's that about? When my neighbor has five bars and they have AT&T and I don't understand. And, and then there's the government. Don't get me started, right? And then then there's the Perkins. I mean, I had this favorite menu item, and they took it off the menu. And what gives with that? What kind of a universe is it where the chicken tender melt miraculously disappears from the Perkins menu? And so my life is just miserable all the time. And of course, there's the kids today. You can always complain about that. They don't say hello to you. They don't greet you. They wear clothes that don't fit. I, they're way too tight or they're way too loose. What I think is that I just need to share my complaints with others. I need to expiate a little sin. And if I talk about it with somebody, I'll feel better. Have you ever thought that? Then you do it. And then what happens? You want to talk to somebody else about it because it didn't satisfy the need. It didn't change what was going on on the inside. And so the whole world begins to know about your grievances. I I met a woman once who was a Christian lady, but she was boasting about something relatively stupid. She said, well, I don't suffer fools lightly. And I thought to myself, a very unsanctified thing, I said, well, I hope that God doesn't take the same approach to you. Um, But I didn't say it because I'm a minister and that wouldn't have been polite. Uh, And so grumbling, grumbling. And that's the fleshly brain. That's what it does. Now let's shift to the Easter brain, because the Easter brain has a different impulse. The Easter brain says, you know, 
I am overjoyed that the risen and ascended Christ does not share my trigger finger and doesn't want to blast everybody in the world like I want to blast them. And isn't it great that he has so much mercy? And isn't it great that his mercy counts for people that I would have voted off the island? Isn't it a terrific thing and a marvelous thing that the scarred and enthroned Christ loves and justifies only one cast of people, sinners, and I am one, and I'm just as bad as everybody that I hate? Now, something about failure. Uh, The fleshly brain says something like this. You can really never get over what you do, and all you are is a collection of your deeds and misdeeds. And so if you're a person who has a reputation or had a reputation in college or in high school, that really will be the looming specter of your life who will always remain with you like Jacob Marley. A chained ghost will wander wherever you wander because you can't escape what you've done because you're defined by your deeds because you thought Aristotle was right. So you're living with Aristotle and you're living with Jacob Marley and they follow you everywhere and you're just the sum total of what you've done and, and you're haunted and haunted and haunted and can't expiate, can't get rid of the demons. And so you think about your rage, you think about the night you punched a hole through a wall, you think about that thing you said to your wife that you should never have said that has stayed with her for years, you think about your words to your children that are like a cutting machete, you think, that, you think about that thing you did in college that one time that you've never told anybody about. But whatever it is, you have this ghost that lingers, this ghost that stays with you. Well, that's the, that's the idea of failure, that you're ruled by your ghosts. And the Easter brain says something different. The Easter brain says that the risen and enthroned Christ says that perfect love casts out fear, fear of failure, and you are loved perfectly. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None, not a drop. And that means that your worst act, your worst act has been plunged into the fountain filled with blood. And there is nothing that can survive that fountain. That we rest upon this truth, that the risen and enthroned Jesus has never seen a sin that he hasn't been able to face down. Ever. And so whatever you bring to this church tonight, it's been dealt with. We rest upon these truths. A lofty Christ who gifts us with a lofty mind because of a lofty station. This is the present gift of the risen Jesus for you, an Easter brain. And this is not some otherworldly distraction. Bishop N.T. Wright puts it this way, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. We have access to one greater than Minerva, a risen Christ who has placed a pierced hand on our heads, who gives us with new minds, And our new minds will soon be joined to new bodies in a new kingdom which will eclipse all of the old pain forever. Thanks be to God. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.